There are two illustrations I want us to give today, one at the beginning and one at the end. So it all comes together. I don't want you to walk out of here today without really knowing the true and living God and understanding him and understanding the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. We all need to forgive and we all need to be forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have committed debts against us. Isn't that what that, that we quoted together? And it's so clear in Micah chapter six. Elizabeth's gonna give the opening illustration and then we're gonna go into Micah six. Am I on? Yep. Okay. Great thanks for praying for us all through our two weeks away. We felt it spiritually, we felt it physically, and we are grateful for you going with us in prayer to these wonderful places we got to experience. At a time in history when it seemed that the entire world had turned their backs on the plight of the Jews, there was a family in Amsterdam who did everything in their power to protect and to provide for their Jewish neighbors and friends. They took seriously Jesus' commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, to show mercy and compassion to those who are afflicted, regardless of the cost involved or the sacrifice that might have to be paid. Corey Ten Boom was part of this courageous family who were watchmakers in Amsterdam during the Nazi occupation. Since the city had the country's largest Jewish population, the Nazis had targeted it. At first, Corey's role was helping to steal ration cards so the Jews being hid and transported to safety could get meals. Then she became part of the Dutch resistance as they prepared false identity papers, fixed cars with government plates, forged signatures, and hid Jews in their homes to move them to safe houses very far away. Through the activities of this family, it is estimated that 800 Jewish lives were saved. On February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant squealed to the Gestapo about the Ten Booms activity. This led to the family's arrest and imprisonment. Casper, Corey's father, died 10 days after their arrest. The Jews and resistant workers hiding in the secret room in the hiding place in their home were never discovered and were safely rescued two days later. Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in the Ravensbrück concentration camp, a woman's labor camp in Germany. Betsy died there on December 16, 1944, the day before her death from the cruel treatment she endured Betsy whispered to Corey from her hospital cot, we must tell them what we learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. Corey was released because of a clerical error from Ravensbrück in 1945, and she traveled all over the world to over 64 countries preaching the gospel, and sharing the power of forgiveness. 
In early 1947, she spoke at a church in Munich, the town where Adolf Hitler had begun his political career. When she finished, a man worked his way through the crowd to speak with her. Balding and heavy-set, he wore an overcoat and carried a brown felt hat. As he stepped closer, though, Corey saw instead a blue uniform, a cap with a skull and a crossbone, and a swinging leather crop. Her stomach churned. It was him, all right, the first SS guard she had seen in the Ravensburg shower room, the undressing before him, the nakedness, the pile of clothes, the leering and mocking Betsy's ashen face. Of all the sadistic camp guards, he had been one of the most cruel. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, the man said, to think that, as you say, he has washed all our sins away. He held out his hand, but Corey didn't reciprocate. How could she ever touch this vermin? You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he continued. I was a guard there, but since that time I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. He extended his hand again. Fraulein, will you forgive me? Corey wrestled with bitterness. This man represented the worst of the place that had taken Betsy's life and so many others. Forgiveness seemed impossible. At the very same time, she remembered Jesus' admonition, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. She had preached the importance of forgiveness for over 12 months, and she had seen firsthand the practical impact. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies resumed their lives, while those who could not remained emotional invalids. Corey tried to smile, but she felt not the slightest spark of warmth and quickly she said a silent prayer, Jesus, help me, I can lift my hand, I can do that much, please supply the feeling. Mechanically, she lifted her arm, and as she gripped the man's hand, something remarkable happened. A current of energy passed between them, and a healing warmth flooded her body. More than forgiveness, Corey felt a genuine love and sympathy. For this man. Her eyes filled with tears. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For several moments, she held his hand. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, she later remembered. And this lesson she would not soon forget. One often cannot forgive without the power and the grace of the living God. What would you have done? It's a question I ask myself many times. What would I have done in Amsterdam? And what would I have done in the basement of that church with that man coming? Let's turn to Micah 6 and begin to probe that question in others. It's an amazing set of verses, verses 1 through 8, because it's a courtroom scene, 
And it's a courtroom of God, and here God is not the judge. Usually we think of God as our judge, and he is our judge, and in many places in the Old Testament and the New, he acts as judge, but here he is not the judge, he's the prosecutor. The people are the defendant, and the world, the mountains, the firmament, are all the judge. Let me read it, verse one to verse two. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Hear the Lord Jehovah, we were singing that first song, Yahweh. You see the word Lord, if you're looking in your, your Bible, it's capitals, capital L-O-R-D, all caps. That means Yahweh, that's Lord Jehovah as, about, as opposed to Lord Adonai or Lord as in master. It's Lord Jehovah. This is the sovereign one of all who is speaking. And he says, he wants to know, he indicts them and he gives two questions to the people of Israel. This is the indictment, and it's in verse three. And you can just underline, it says, oh my people, question one, what have I done to you? Have you ever asked that question? I have, when people get mad at you, and I go, what have I done to you? And here, God is asking the children of Israel, his people, the people that he has been dealing with for hundreds and hundreds and probably over a thousand years by this point, been dealing with them. And he says, what have I done to you? That it doesn't say it, but it intones that you treat me this way. Have you ever thought, what has God done to you that you treat him the way you treat him? Have you ever thought of that? And then the second question is, how have I wearied you? The word weary means burdened you. What have I done to put a burden on you? And this is where he ends. He goes, answer me, answer me. It's a, he's the prosecutor in this. The world is the judge and he's there. And then he answers his own question. And he does that in the next few verses. He does it with five or six answers. Can I give them to you? Verse three. Oh, my people, what have I done? How have I burned you? Verse four. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. He's telling them that for 400 and maybe even 430 years, they were in bondage to another government, to the Pharaoh. They were the ones that were the... um, underserved, they were the slaves, they were the underside that ran this great kingdom called uh, Egypt and the Egyptian kingdom. They were the workers that built all those buildings and all the things that even we've been uncovering over the last 200 years. It was the Israelites who were doing it. They were being persecuted constantly. And he says, I brought you out of that. Is there any gratitude here? And then he goes, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I I not only brought you out of Egypt, I made you free men and women. There was a freedom that came when you crossed the Red Sea, which he doesn't even mention here, the miracles that he did. When you crossed the Red Sea, you were no longer under the thumb of Egypt or the slavery of Egypt. 
And he says, this is what I've done, so why are you treating me this way? But in great fashion, God doesn't stop there. He goes, and I sent you, the end of verse four, number three, he says, I sent you three people, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. They're siblings. Moses was the great leader, the great lawgiver. Aaron was the great uh, priest. He's the one that said, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. One of the great prayers of the Old Testament came from Aaron. Aaron was a great priest between God and the people. I gave you Aaron. And then he says, I gave you Miriam. Miriam was a prophetess. She was always sharing the scriptures and sharing what God is telling. And between the three of them, Moses leading and Aaron and Miriam doing kind of the spiritual side of it, Moses doing the physical and spiritual side, I gave you leaders to take you out of that land in bondage and get you, he doesn't say it, but he will in a few moments, to the promised land. He goes, I did all this, so why are you so upset at me? And then he shares some things that are not as familiar. Verse five, oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised? So you may not remember this because it's one of the lesser stories, but in Numbers chapter 21 and 22, write that down, the book of Numbers, another book you haven't been in in a while, most likely, and I'm not condemning you, neither had I. Numbers 21 and 22. So for 40 years, the people have been wandering. They're coming out. They're getting ready to come in to the land of Israel. And there's a place between the desert and the land of Israel. It's called Moab. This is where Ruth uh, and Naomi went, or Ruth was from Moab, but Naomi went. So the whole story of the book of Ruth kind of begins in Moab. Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River and he's king, and he's scared to death, and he doesn't want to let the people pass because they got to go through Moab to get to the river to cross into the promised land. And Balak wasn't going to let him do it. It's, this, it's a great story. And it continues, he goes, and what Balaam, the son of Behor, answered him. So it's Balak and Balaam. So excuse me if I mix them up, but Balak's the king, Balaam's a prophet. And so Balaam is living in another city. The king sends people to the city and says to Balaam, come over and curse these people that are about to come into my land. I want you, because he was a very powerful orator, to come and curse the people. They believed in cursings and blessings. And so, and Balaam prays, he says, give me a day. And he goes, I'm not going to do it. And so the king sent another courier and says, you got to come. And Balaam says, I'm not going to do it. And they kept going back and forth. And finally, Balaam says, I am going to do it. And so as he's coming, there's this whole conflict. He's struggling on the road. And that's where his donkey speaks. Remember, we hear about Balaam's donkey. And um, so he gets so mad at his donkey, he starts kicking his donkey, you know, and just really abusing his donkey. And the donkey speaks out. And the donkey says, what have I done to you? I've done nothing but take you everywhere you want to go for the last seven years. Balaam, the donkey, Balaam's donkey, I don't know that he had a name. Is a donkey a man or a woman? I don't even know. It's, anyway, whatever, male, female, I don't know, but is saying this, that you are mistreating me. And it was as if God was saying, 
Balaam, don't mistreat the children of Israel. So Balaam gets down to the Jordan River and crosses it, and there's Moab and whatever. And he goes to Balak, he says, I'm not gonna curse him, you gotta curse him. I'm not gonna curse him, you gotta curse him. And Balaam ends up blessing the people. There's a blessing that comes out of this that turned around the cursing of Balak to the blessing of Balaam. And God says, I did all that. I did it all. Balak became nothing. And then, I gotta turn the page in my Bible. He says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Now again, you go, where's Shittim and where's Gilgal? These are two locations. Shittim is on the east side of Jordan where they came from. And Gilgal is on the west side of Jordan where they went to. And he said, I protected you from the beginning to the end, from the first part of the journey into the Jordan across to the promised land. If you want to read the whole story, it's in the book of Joshua. That's what the whole book of Joshua is about. And so went in there, if you want to hear all the Jericho and Ai and all the battles they did, he said, I protected you all this way. So what's the deal here, people? Why are you against me? Because the people had gone against Almighty God. And he reminded them. Let's just pause here for a moment. Are you ever reminded of what God does for you? Or do we forget? We have such short memories when it comes to God's work in our lives. And part of it is because we don't even know when God's working in our lives. I believe when we get to heaven, this is not in the Bible, so it's kind of a billism. Um, when we get to heaven, I think God's, when it's my turn to get the film of my life, I think God's going to show me all the times he protected me and I didn't even know it. You know, when, when I get delayed on, a, on an airplane and all you people are cursing that you got delayed on the airplane, I go, there's a reason why I was delayed. Maybe I shouldn't be in the car right afterwards to where that's going. God, you know, yes, it's a pain in the neck and you waste a day and all the other things. And we travel a lot. So when we're late, we get a lot of wasted time. But I look at it not as wasted time. I look at it as God protecting us. It's just me. I'm going, God's, this is the part of God's work I don't see. But if you don't want to thank God for what you don't see, thank God for all the things you do see. Like you woke up this morning, you're breathing It's a beautiful day. I mean, just simple things, all the way to the complex things. I got to tell you, and I'm not going to give you details because it's it's not anybody's business, but I saw a miracle this month in a relationship. I'm just going to tell you, in August, it was a miracle. It was like a miracle. When you think that people can't come back together again, I saw a miracle, and I had nothing to do with it. It was God. None of us had anything. It was God did the miracle. It's a miracle. It's like... God put some people together that hadn't been together, that should be together, and it could only be done by the work of God. And you go, wow, look at this. What is God doing? Are you thankful? Do you have gratitude? Do you seriously think that God has forgotten you and that he's burdened you and that he's making you weary? Or is God working in your life? And I believe he's working. Maybe he's not taking you from Shittim to Gilgal, and maybe he's not giving you the blessing of Balaam, and maybe he's not taking you out of Egypt. No, that's their story. But what is your story? How is God working in your life? It is such an incredible reality. He works in every one of our lives. 
I would just say, as a very simple thing, open your eyes and look. It's there. People go, wow, Bill, so many things happened to you. I go, no, a lot of things happened to us. I just look for them. They're happening to you as well. God is working in your life, and just look for it so you can thank him for it. It is an amazing thing. And people that are, you know, God's not working in my life. I'm saying, I think God is working in your life. Just figure it out. It is working. And here, it's a beautiful thing. It's now the people's turn to talk. So God spoke, and then he gave his reasons, and now it's the people's turn to talk. And this is, it's, it is my favorite part of the Bible. I always talk about it being my favorite part, but I got to say it because it's on my ring. And by the way, total aside, I'm wearing a, a ring that has Hebrew on it as I'm going into Lebanon with a Hezbollah and they're questioning us. And thank God he didn't see the ring because I didn't think about it. And when I got to the place, the lady goes, one of the believers goes, what are you doing with that ring on? It's in Hebrew. Well, if you don't understand the Hebrew the Jewish Lebanon crisis, I shouldn't have been wearing this ring <laughs> anyway, but it's on my ring. What these verses say is on my ring because it, I don't do tattoos or I tattoo it to my arm, so I put it on a ring. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So the people are saying, okay, now what do we do? And Micah is the person replying, and he says, what should I do to come before Yahweh and bow myself before the God on high? And then he says five things, five things. Shall I come with burnt offerings? There's no answer. You know what the answer is? No, no. So he ups it to one of the best, which is a one-year-old calf. He goes, should I come, in the end of verse six, with a calf a year old? Should I come to the Lord to appease this problem that we're having with him with burnt offerings? No answer. With a calf a year old. This is like the prime rib, the calf. There's no answer. It's silence. So Micah, he's very American here. You know, you didn't think Micah was an American. He thinks more is better than less. That's a very American thing, but it was also a thing there. He goes, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? What's interesting is God's not pleased with one. He's not pleased even with your best ram. So let's give a thousand rams. A thousand of them, because if, if one's not good enough, a thousand should be. And what is the answer? What's the answer God gives? Silence. It's silent. And then, this is, I love this one, and again, we've got to parse it a little, 10,000 rivers of oil. Now, this is olive oil, not petroleum. It's olive oil. Now think about it, when you buy olive oil, you spend what, 10 bucks for a nice Evo olive oil thing here? Think about 10,000 rivers. This is like, if I gave him billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of value, that's what it is. I mean, you can't have rivers of olive oil. 
an olive press. You might get a liter or two out of an olive press, and how many are there? Because you only use a little olive oil. He's saying the whole river system is olive oil, and I give it because that was a commodity, like gold, silver, copper, etc. It was a commodity, and I give it to God. He must be satisfied. Silence. And then in the second half of verse 7, they leave, Micah leaves kind of the godly choices and goes to the ungodly choice, which is child sacrifice. Now, back then, the various groups like Moab and other groups there, they would sacrifice their children. They would take them to a high precipice, and in certain ways, certain times, it was very dark and very evil, they would throw their children over the precipice to appease the gods. And he's saying, what does he say? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? He's even saying, well, if what I know to do isn't right, and then I keep adding to it's not right, why don't we do what they do and see if it's right? How many of us try to do what others do and think, oh, I'll just do what they do? And so he's saying, I'm going to do what they do. And then he even punctuates it with the last phrase there. He goes, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He was right. He was right in asking that or making that question, does the fruit of my body, which is my children, can they pay for my sins? And what is the answer? Silence. Silence. It is so amazing to this day, we think we can pay for our sins by what we give. I'll give my children to God. It's not going to pay for your sin. It's a good thing, but it's not going to pay for your sin. Nothing pays for your sin except the Almighty God. It's a foretaste of Christ's coming. It's a picture of who can pay for our sin coming before us. And then he says these words, which these are the words that are on my ring. He has told you, O man and O woman, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, I won't read it, but it's also in Matthew 23 where Jesus says, but you have neglected the important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus even quotes this prophet Micah when he's talking to the people who are not following in godly ways and saying, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I asked you to pray uh, for City Lead Conference coming up because in the City Lead Conference, we're going to do something different. We usually give inspirational talks and kind of get them to come to church afterwards, but we're actually going to talk about justice, mercy, and, and humbling ourselves before God. This is the verse we're going to use for the whole morning as we talk about this. And so what is it? Justice, a concern for the behavior of people, a genuine respect for them, a desire for peace, mercy or kindness, the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it's within your power to help or not to help. 
Mercy comes from the word a price paid. You see, mercy costs something. Corey Ten Boom, her father Casper, her brother, and her sister Bessie, it cost them something to save those 800 people. And I remember um, Corey Ten Boom in her older years was a friend of my great aunt, and they would come to church here and she would speak, and I was, you know, young, and you know, this is way back, and I was young, and to hear this old lady talk about the mercy of God. It's just an amazing thing how God committed mercy on her and how she was to be able to commit mercy on other people. We want God's mercy, but we're afraid to commit mercy with other people. And it's time that we show compassion. We need to be people who love justice and people who love compassion and kindness. And then he says to walk humbly with your God. Humility, and I've talked a lot about humility, and I won't go into a big definition of it, but there's two parts to it. There's humility with people, and there's humility with God. And we need to have both. The understanding and the use of gifts and talents that one possesses without pride or arrogance. The and the feeling and attitude that, when you, uh, that what you have is not better than what others have. See, humility is not saying, I don't have anything. That's false humility. Humility is saying, God has given me certain things. I use it, but what I do is not better than what you do. Because here's the thing. We don't know what the effect is of what you do. You have no clue what the effect is. There is a horizontal and a vertical aspect to this. Wow, our time's gone by fast. We'll keep going next week. But I need to tell you something I saw when I was in Ghana. So after the week of meetings, we were there. We went down to the coast. It's called the Cape Coast, where there are several forts. They look like, um, they're going to show them to you in a minute. They look like castles or forts and all this is one. This is called Elmina, Elmina Castle. It's actually more of a fort. And the water used to come up against those walls, but it's receded back. This is where they would take the people from the interior and put them on a boat and bring them to the new world of slaves. It was right here. And I've heard about it, and I thought, I got to go see it just got to go see it. And so we went, and um, there's some pictures of the inside of it as well. But this is the place that John Newton worked. And you may not know John Newton, but this is where he worked. And what they would do is they would put the women, there were about three to 400 women at a time together, and there were about six or 700 men and they would put them in a room like this, a hundred or so. We were, what, 15, 20 people. They'd put a hundred people in there at a time. It was horrendous. It was terrible. And then, show the door, if you would. This is the door of no return. When they walked through that door, they went on a gangplank to a ship to go to the New World. Most of them went to Jamaica. So if you're Jamaican and African descent, you most likely came from Ghana. 
So we're there, and the guide who was helping us walk through all this, and we're there late in the day, so there weren't a lot of people there. He said, this is where John Newton was. I don't even know if he knew who John Newton was. And you may not know who John Newton was, but John Newton was a young man who was a merchant marine. He would take guns from Britain, bring them down to Ghana, sell them to warlords who would then buy people. They would put them in this place for three months or so, and then they would put them on a ship, take them to Jamaica, and there were other parts they took them, but mostly this one went to Jamaica. Then they would pick up the sugar from the sugarcane fields and other things, and then go back to England, sell it, and then repeat it. It's called the Passage. And between Ghana and Jamaica, it was called the Middle Passage. You've heard of the Middle Passage. That's the Middle Passage. He did this for 10 years. John Newton did it for 10 years. And God got a hold of his life in a radical way. And he stopped, it's the late 1700s. And he stopped it. He couldn't stop the slave trade, but he stopped doing it. And he went back to England and he spent the rest of his life just in agony over it. He became a pastor. In that church was a couple who brought their nephew to church. Their nephew, his name was William, like me, brought their nephew to church. Their par his parents didn't bring him to church, and whenever they found out, he, they'd have to stop for a few weeks, and they'd sneak him back to church. Pastor John taught William, this little boy, that slavery was wrong, and the dignity of people's life and all those things about justice and humility and mercy. So much so that this little William became a grown-up William and became a member of parliament and he spent his entire life fighting the slave trade. It took 30 years, his name is William Wilberforce, and for 30 years he fought the slave trade. And near the end of his life, they won. And the slave trade in Britain, at least for the colonies, was over. And then about seven years ago, on his deathbed, they outlawed slavery itself. It was a two-part thing, outlawing the trading of slaves and outlawing slaves, the ownership of slaves. That's all he's remembered for. He did so much more. But if you go back, it was because Pastor John taught this young boy when he was eight, nine, and 10 about the dignity of life and the mistakes he had made. John Newton is also known for one other thing. He wrote a song called Amazing Grace. And the guy's quoting the song as we're standing in that horrible place. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And then what's the second phrase? That saved a wretch. See, we, we sing it very sanitized. We're singing it in the air conditioning. We're singing it dressed nicely. He's talking about that he was a wretched man. And God saved his life. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The last verse of that 
says when we've been there 10,000 years, right, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Why did he say 10,000 years? Why, ten, why not 1,000 years? Why not 100 years? Why not 5 million years? Because for 10 years, he took 1,000 slaves to the new world. 1,000 times 10 is 10,000. He put 10,000 to remind himself of his sin and the sins he committed and that only Jesus Christ could save him. You and I sing it unaware of its meaning to a man who's been dead for two centuries. But here's the reality. Corey Ten Boom needed to forgive. John Newton needed to be forgiven. And Jesus Christ does both. He does both. I don't know if you're here and you need to forgive somebody. And may I say, they may even be dead and you still need to forgive them. And you may be here and you may need to be forgiven. You may need to make a call. You may need to go see somebody and go, I apologize. I am sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Either way, this is how restoration, this is how justice, mercy, and humility works. To forgive and to be forgiven. And what I'd like to do this morning as we close, a little different closing. I've been away for a while, so we're going to do it differently. I'm going to open this up, and if you would like to come forward, there'll be some of our prayer partners who are going to walk up, but if you'd like to come forward and pray, either by yourself, do you need forgiveness? Do you need forgiveness from God Almighty? Do you need forgiveness from someone else? Do you need to forgive somebody? Is there something in your life you need? We're going to sing Amazing Grace right now, and we're going to stand and do it. And just pray, and if you'd like to walk forward, there'll be people here, I'm here, Elizabeth's gonna come up, we'll be here, we'll pray with you, they'll turn my microphone off, and during the song, just walk up during the song. And if you don't know who Jesus is, if this is all, you got dragged here by a family member, come down here and meet Jesus. He's in your, he's right by you, but we can help you as well. So let's take a moment and pray, sing, and walk forward.